So in the Bible, we essentially have four accounts of Jesus's life, four different tellings of the story of his life and of his ministry. We call these Gospels. And today we're going to be reading from Mark's Gospel, which, as you'll hear, is a little bit different than the others. As you'll hear, it's significantly shorter than the others. Uh, It's only eight verses. All the other versions tend to go much longer into much more deeper detail. As one commentary commented, Mark exercises enormous reserve in his version of the story. As you'll hear, he allows essentially just three people on his Easter stage, all of them women. There's an angel, though he's not exactly identified that, just a young man in a white robe. But what's interesting, too, is that Mark ends his entire gospel pretty much abruptly right at verse 8. The early church added verses 9 through 20. Years and years later, most scholars agree that those are not Mark's words. But even more interesting to me is that Mark ends the story essentially smack dab in the middle of a sentence with a little conjunction just sort of dangling there in the air. It's hard to hear in the English translation, but but in the original Greek, it's crystal clear. And so if you're a grammar nerd, if you believe that ending a sentence in the middle of a preposition is taboo, well, then Mark commits grammatical treason. His version of the story just ends abruptly, unfinished, like the, like the narrator just sort of walks off the stage while still talking. That's how the story ends. Or is it? A reading from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 16. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. They had been saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance to the tomb? When they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had already been rolled back. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. But he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has been raised. He is not here. Look, there is the place they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. So they went out and fled from the tomb, for terror and amazement had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You know, I never know where to start on a day like today. Such a big day. Such a big day. So much to say. Such high expectations. For some, this may be the only time all year that they come to church. I know that wouldn't happen in this congregation, but in other churches I've heard that's true. There's a lot of pressure. It's a familiar story, too, but yet every year we want a a fresh take. It sort of reminds me of the little boy who was there in nice clothes, clinging desperately to his Easter basket, protesting. I don't understand, he said, why we have to go to church every year on Easter. 
They always tell the same story, and it always ends up okay in the end. Well, the story that you heard indeed is a good one. The only problem, though, I would say is that it's a little short on facts. In fact, if you, if you came this morning looking for details, I'm afraid that you will probably leave a little disappointed. I suppose, I suppose that some of you who know the Bible may quickly rush to Matthew or Luke's or John's version of the story. Their stories are, they're happier. They're, they're, they're more what you might expect on Easter. But Mark offers more nuance, fewer details, a little less good news. Mark's version is full of meaning and truth, but, but when it comes to specifics on how this whole resurrection thing happens, there just isn't much there. The focus, in fact, is not so much on Jesus and what happened to him, but on those three women, those that came that morning only to find that the tomb was already empty. And maybe that's where the rubber hits the road for us, too. In my experience, over 25 years of ministry, what I've come to discover is there's essentially two kinds of people that show up on Easter. Those that that believe the whole story is true, and those who desperately want to believe even if they can't fully commit. Regardless of how we come, though, believing a little or believing a lot, we all want for it to be true. We all long for resurrection in our life. That no matter where we are in our lives, no matter what good Friday we find ourselves in, we're all longing for a spirit of new life. You see, I would argue that deep down, most of us aren't all that worried about the details of Jesus's resurrection. What we're really interested in is ultimately, what does it mean for us? I recently asked all of my friends on social media, some of them inside the church and some of them outside the church, just sort of asked, what is the meaning of Easter? Not what happened, but what does it mean? As you can imagine, I got all sorts of answers, lots and lots of responses. One person says, it means Jesus is coming, so hide the Easter eggs. One person talked about peeps and jelly beans and chocolate-covered eggs. Most of the folks talked about newness and new life and, and new beginnings. One person said, it means that death never wins, but love always does. And then, of course, there was that fairly common answer that, that Jesus died for our sins and was resurrected, that he overcame life, uh, overcame death and sin forever for everybody. And it means essentially that we all get to go to heaven someday. Now, while that may be true, I wonder if Easter means a little something else. Something different, something a little bit bigger, not just for us way down the road, but right now, today, tomorrow, when you go back to work, when you go back to school, when you drive in your car, when you deal with the people that you deal with on a daily basis. I wonder if it means something more then. You see, I would argue that the meaning of Easter is something altogether different than what many of us think it means That when we consider the implications, when we consider the ramifications of everything that it means, that it's something more, something bigger, something deeper, 
Because the truth is, is that if Easter just means getting you out of hell and into heaven, then I think we've missed a lot of the significance of not only what it meant back then in Jesus' time, but also what it means for you and for me here and now. Marcus Borg, the great scholar, once said, Jesus lives, Jesus is Lord. Easter is about all of this. But to reduce it to a spectacular miracle a long time ago and hope for afterlife is to diminish it and to masticate it. It's not about heaven, he says. It's about the transformation of this world. You see, I believe that we all long for resurrection in our lives in some way, shape, or form. That, 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 that it's not about someday after we die, but it's about here, now. For some of us, it's in our marriage. For, for others, it might be in our relationship with our kids. For others, it's this ongoing longing for life after addiction or betrayal. Some just want to live with the notion that, that tomorrow doesn't have to be like yesterday. Still others just want to truly believe and trust that compassion matters, that God is alive, active in this world. And so each time, each year, this time, we we gather at the edge of an empty tomb and acknowledge that the world's brokenness is finally, ultimately, not what's most real and true that we gather around the conviction that that God hasn't given up on this world and that this world matters. But by just focusing on the forgiveness of sins and the the get into heaven after we die part, what theologians oftentimes refer to as atonement theology, we miss out on some of the good stuff, some of the good stuff that happens here and now. You see, the, the beauty of Easter is that it is, it's found in its invitation to live in the here and now with grace and with joy. I heard the story recently of a couple that went to a restaurant and they didn't have a reservation and they had to wait for a table. And so the hostess simply escorted them to the bar and invited them to wait there. And she said, while you're waiting, You know, it's happy hour. If you'd like something, I can bring you something. And they said, no, 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 thanks. We're we're okay. We'll just wait for our table. And about 10 minutes later, that same waitress walked by again. She goes, you know, it's still happy hour. I can bring you something if you'd like. No, no, no. We'll just wait, he said. And finally, about 10 minutes after that, she came back one more time. You know, it's still happy hour. If you'd like, I can, and this time he interrupted her. He said, stop. Look, we're Christians. We go to church. This is as happy as we get. We just want a table. Have you ever noticed? Have you ever noticed that Christians, all too often, that we're developing this reputation of being anything but happy? that there's no grace, there's very little joy in our lives, that we seem to be angry and full of judgment more than anything else. John Ortberg, Presbyterian minister, once said, the world is tired of Christians who proclaim that they know the right beliefs and are all committed to the right values, but in whom there is no grace. 
Maybe you saw the news story this last week. It came out following the great uh, recent Gallup poll that, that noticed that, that, that in the United States, membership has fallen below the majority for the first time in history. That when Gallup first started this poll in 1937, they discovered that, that about 73% of Americans belong to some church. And that remained fairly strong, very, uh, fairly steady for the next six decades, somewhere around 70%, until, until the start of the 21st century when it began to decline. And in 2020, it was reported that less than 47% now are part of a church or a synagogue or a mosque. But what would happen, I wonder, What would happen to the church if we started making the nightly news for how we love one another? That's how the early church grew, by by the power of a loving reputation. They believed that Easter, that Jesus' resurrection, was God's way of of vindicating the Jesus path, the path of of a humble, sacrificial love in which you ask, how can I, how can I serve the little? the lost and the least, not worry so much about crushing your enemies, but, but serving the downtrodden, the oppressed, those that were most in need. You see, I thank God every day. I thank God every day that in this place, the faith of this church is that it stands boldly and says that the empty tomb is good news for every human life not because of the faith that we have in God, but because of the faith that God has in us. Frederick Buechner was raised in a fairly dysfunctional home. His dad was an alcoholic and and later died by suicide. Struggling as a young adult, Buechner found himself walking through New York City one day on a Sunday morning and was struck, moved a little bit by the music coming from a church that he passed. So he simply walked inside and sat and began to listen, and pretty soon he was, he was moved. It was the first time in his entire life that he'd ever sat foot in a church. And the music and the message, it spoke to him in ways that he never dreamed. So moved, so converted, that three months later, he found himself attending seminary. And so he was able to learn the stories of scriptures with fresh ears. Those stories that you and I know, have known since our childhood, these were all new to him. And so later, after he graduated, he was asked, how do you summarize all of these stories? He simply thought for a moment, and he said, The worst things are never the last things. He says, look at the thread that runs all the way through Scripture, the story of the flood and of Joseph, of the exodus, of the exile, of of Easter, the resurrection. This overarching narrative, he says, that keeps getting repeated over and over and over again, that the worst things are never the last things. You see, Easter allows us to call our human experiences what they are. It frees us to say, you know, this thing that happened to me, it was awful. And it was unjust. It was a hell on earth. It allows us to say, this last year with the pandemic has been a nightmare for a lot of people. 
allows us to, to shake our fists at the heavens. But yet Easter, resurrection means that, that we can live in that pain. We can acknowledge the pain. We can shout out against that pain. But whatever happens next, we trust, we believe that those things don't have the last word. That the worst things are never the last things. So what does a faith that lives like that look like? Well, maybe you've just gone through a divorce. Or maybe your children are breaking your heart. Maybe, maybe the person you love is, is cold. Maybe the, the pandemic has caused you to lose your business. Resurrection, Easter says, it's okay to name that. It's okay to, to feel it, to sit with it for a while. But don't ever be deceived into thinking that the last word has been spoken about that situation. And Lamott once said, love never fails. Never, not once, eventually. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it at some point. Never, not once, she said. Easter says, the story is not over. There were two children talking one time, and one of them asked a very profound question of the other. How do you know, he began to wonder, how do you know when you were blind? The other child thought for a moment and finally says, I suppose you don't. You only know afterwards when you can see. So, church, we are invited on this day to open our eyes, to see the world, not necessarily as it is, but as it can be. To discover that we have been blind to the resurrection powers of a living Christ that comes to us not to take us away from the world, but moves into it. It invites us to live a life filled with love, vitality, with hope, with joy. Sometimes the greatest gift that we can ever be given is the gift of a new perspective, the chance to see life with, with new eyes, with fresh eyes. And maybe on some level, that's what Easter is, the chance to see life in a new way. As Frederick Buechner, who I quoted a moment ago, says, he rose, and a few saw him briefly and talked to him. And if it's true... There is nothing left to say. And if it's not true, well, then there's nothing left to say. But for believers and unbelievers, both, both lives have never been the same. Church, there's nothing left to say. All that's left is to see. All that's left to see is, is that, that death is not the final word. That love is stronger than hate. That forgiveness is better than revenge. That fear can be overwhelmed by hope. I mentioned a moment ago in the introduction to the scripture that Mark's story just sort of ends in the middle of a sentence. It just sort of leaves it unfinished. Most scholars believe that Mark's aim, Mark's intent in this, in this extraordinary telling of this incredible story, is to invite the church the hearer, the listener, to invite you to figure it all out, 
to finish the story for yourself. It's up to us to figure out what this story means to decide how we're going to live out the meaning of this day, this meaning of Easter. Mark seems to be saying, well, what about you? What about you? You've heard the story of Jesus' resurrection. What are you going to do about it? How is it going to shape your life moving forward? Are you going to take the chance that that Jesus' message of love can transform not only your life, but can transform the entire world? Are you going to accept the invitation to live in grace and joy and hope? Are you going to trust that the worst things are never the last things? You see, church, there's nothing left to say. All that's left to do is to see, to trust, to believe, to believe that the story is never over, that God will always have the last word, and that word will always be life. Amen.